Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. <laughs> Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Good voice. Yep. All right. So let's roll it to the uh, intro. I think I'm going to get the title right. Uh, here we go. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Multifamily Unscripted Show. With your co-host Scott Hollister, Sam Grooms, and Ben Labovich. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. How are we doing? I'm doing great, but you definitely did not get the name right. Multifamily syndication unscripted. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> it's just been too long in between. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. Quite the year for you guys, right? So a lot of growth, a lot of lesson learned, a lot of accomplishments, and education so we're going to kind of wrap it all into one ben why don't you just give us a layout see how the season's going to go hell do i know (laughs) (laughs) it's even worse than the first season you know when we started at one of the first episodes i remember saying hey we're wearing the same clothes because we're recording three shows at you know each time we sit down three shows per day and we don't know how many shows we end up with this is even worse this season is even worse because what I think the intention here is, is that this season has been extraordinarily action-packed. Sam and I have done a lot of stuff. And so we just want to debrief. The entire season two is a debrief. I think there's a lot of, um, everybody likes to talk fancy and, and dress this up and put lipstick on it. You know, the whole sport of real estate and specifically syndication is a hot, hot subject we want to shed a little reality light so to speak on it what it really looks like from within the trenches you know as real related to our experience and so where this conversation leads us we don't know Uh, think of it as three guys having tea at a dining room table for about three hours or whatever it is and we'll just splice half hour at a time. We'll find a place to stop and you know start the next episode. But by and large, we're trying to think of questions you guys might ask us if you had us at that table and answer those questions. And how this, how this conversation flows, we don't know how many episodes we end up with. We don't know. Uh, we we want to be helpful. We want to paint more of a colorful and true picture of what our experiences have been and our experiences are we bought about almost 500 units that's 50 million dollars by acquisition uh we are remodeling right now have have taken the interior renovations and house have started a construction company sam and i are remodeling 20 to 30 units per month I mean, there's a lot of moving parts right now. We want to give you kind of a, a bird's eye view on what that looks like uh, so that when you think 
syndication, when you think multifamily, you have a little bit more perspective on what that really means, how that really works, what the dynamics really are. Structurally, how this season two comes out, we don't know. We're just going to wing it. We're just going to talk until we've said everything we feel we need to say to give you enough of a good uh, picture. On Let me interject. What we've done. If you don't set an end time for Ben, he's just going to keep talking. So we, we have to have some this, kind of a limit, right? This, this is true. This, <laughs> this is, by the way, there are two people in Ben's life who are allowed to interrupt Ben. <laughs> Patricia Leibovich is one. Samuel is the other. That's it. Freaking Scott, don't think that because you're on this podcast, she can interrupt me. <laughs> That's just not how that works. And Ben actually feels that way. He actually told that to our broker yesterday. <laughs> I did. Well, yeah, because, you know, my wife and you, that's it. That's how it is. Too good. But uh, I, ho I hope th this, is, this is what you wanted to get out of me, right, Scott? This is, this is basically it. And now we get into the conversation. And I think format-wise, Scott's going to ask us questions. Sam and I are going to answer to the best of our ability. You're not going to see the dirty, dirty sausage factory, the very back of it. We're not going to go that deep. But we will say enough to paint enough of a reasonable, logical, and honest picture to give you an honest perspective on what it's like to play with the big boys, essentially, is what it comes down to. Definitely. And that's, that's my vision is I, I want to pull that out of you, right? So one of my favorite things to do is sit down with the, a seasoned real estate investor and ask them questions. So not only can I, you know, learn about a certain process and try to skip past, you know, things that you, you might not know in the beginning of your career. And one of my favorite questions is, what did you do on your first like one to five deals, right? I might not be on the level of someone who's, you know, purchasing a hundred million dollar building, but I want to know about what's that first duplex, triplex. Okay. All right. What's that, that syndication process that you did in the beginning, because it's still fresh in your mind. You're still going through it. And I think that, that reason and that, you know, being in your forefront, I think you're better off at teaching someone than looking up to someone that, you know, has a massive, you know, portfolio so far. So I, I like being able to leave those like little nuggets, you know, for the audience so they can pick up, you know, and, and try to learn and do their best. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. So let's round table. Let's get right into it. So quick overview of last year and uh, how many deals did you guys close on? And we'll talk about that first one. Want to take that, Sam? Yeah, so Ben already mentioned it, but in our first year, we did uh, four <laughs> deals, 500 units, about 50 million in acquisitions, and we raised about 20 million. Awesome. Just a walk in the park, right? Yep. Not a bad <laughs> first year. Yeah, exactly. So I remember seeing you guys, I think it was like a Facebook photo, and I, I'm pretty sure, but I'll ask, I think it was both you in a bed, and like you were just underwriting some deals in a hotel room you know, missing out on here and there. Is that true? I think that, I think if I'm calling that back, right? So, so I was in the bed, Ben was standing next to the bed. Let's get that clear. Yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. We, Good we thing I asked. Both in the bed. Although, you know, I tried, but it didn't work. Out. We were able to get two, uh, two beds in the room. 
Um, yeah, that, that was actually us in Indianapolis. So we hadn't gotten a deal yet. And we were underwriting in other markets. And Indianapolis was one of the ones we were considering. Um, ben had a few connections there. And we were in best and final at a deal out there that we ended up losing on. Um, but like they said, some of the best deals are the ones that you don't get. Because I, I don't know if we'd be where we are today, especially in the market like Phoenix, if we had gotten that deal. But definitely. Let me take you a step back because it all comes down to partnership. In, and we're going to come back to this theme. Like before Sam, I've never had a partner, ever. Was terrified of the idea, didn't see any value in the idea. And, you know, my wife was my only partner, that's it. And, you know, the way Sam and I hooked up and it's like, you know, tongue and groove kind of thing, that, that time frame where we're getting on the plane, we're going to Indianapolis, we think we got about one chance in a hundred that we will get the deal. But the romance behind, I don't mean like romance, romance in a classical sense, but I mean the, 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 the energy behind finding someone who is on the same wavelength, who is interested in the same things for most of the same reasons, thinks about things very similarly the same way and complements your skill set. Um, the romance behind it, the, the excitement, and it's quite excitement. It's not like bombastic. It's, it's a very, very interpersonal kind of thing. I mean, that's what I remember from those times, from those that I'm talking about it like happened 25 years ago. That's a year and a half ago. It does Maybe, seem like 25 years ago, though. Yeah, it, it does seem like 25 years ago. But um, I just, I want to stress that because this is a difficult business. It's a challenging business. There's a lot of dynamics. There's a lot of moving parts. You really got to want to do it to persevere in it. You, you, you just really got to want to do it. And the th again, the thing that really comes to my mind about those times, yes, we were sitting at 5 a.m. in the morning and until 8 in the evening, dialing in our underwriting and things like that. But we, the thing that I really remember is the energy behind, okay, I think I'm sitting on the right track now. And we're barely moving. We may not even be moving yet. We're barely moving. We're, we're just, you know, it's like that gigantuous ball that you are trying to get it to roll, but it's kind of getting there, but not really at that point. But the energy you feel in, in being in the right place at the right time with the right person, that's what I remember about that. And I don't know mm -hmm. how else to describe it, but you know when it's right. And that's what it takes. It takes something like that at it's least amazing in my experience yeah and i think that's great that you you found a partnership that you each complement each other so in that ball you talked about right that just to get that moving and get that first deal so what was that frustration like of you know keep losing out on each deal and what kept you you know sticking to your underwriting guidelines you know did you have something that you had to go by and, and was it tough sticking to it for that first one? Cause you wanted to get a deal, I'm assuming. 
And so I don't know if we had pressure to change our underwriting guidelines too much. Um, the thing is when you get to these best and finals, you might have the best price and you're still not going to get the, the deal. So it, it was more than just get coming up with a higher offer price and changing your underwriting. Um, you have to be in the broker's face, be in multiple best and finals and be around them multiple times before they will suggest to the seller that you should get awarded the deal. So a lot of times we'll have the best offer in best and final, and then they'll go to the second best, someone who they've had a relationship with and say, if you come up to this price, basically giving them our prize, you get the deal. So it's not a true best and final um, in that sense. But so we didn't necessarily get pressure, but we knew we just had to be consistent and be in the broker's face and just keep going at it and chugging along to get our first one. And That's having awesome. said that, of course, it, you know, if you look uh, as I look at our early underwriting, I just laugh because we weren't <laughs> even close. Uh, so having said what Sam just said, which is absolutely true, we did dial in our underwriting. But it's not that, you know, in this market, there's an expectation that you can't leave anything on the table. You have to be that good at knowing how to underwrite, seeing the angles. And it gets infinitely easier after you have some trailing financials to look at. You know, you, you cross the paradigm from, you know, wondering where to even begin then to taking an educated guess and then to absolutely knowing how much things are going to cost and how things work simply because you have trailing numbers to prove. So our underwriting right now looks quite different from what it did two years ago when we first started dialing it in. Well, yeah, if you go, even that first six months that Ben and I started underwriting, the time before we started to when we got our first deal, it changed dramatically. And like Ben said, it's, it's pretty embarrassing if you go back to the, when we very first started to the time we got our first deal, uh, how simplistic our underwriting was. So unpack that on that first one. So what key measures did you use to get your own trailing 12 and those educated guesses to feel confident enough to get that first one under contract? Well, we guess. <laughs> <laughs> educated. <laughs> I mean, well, okay, so. well, we talked a lot about it in the first season, right? It's, a lot of it's just averages. So yeah. if you don't have your own data and so Ben and I, we ve we're very specific on what we buy. So there's a lot of similar similarities between the, our properties. So now we know how to underwrite exactly what we're going to buy where you can still get averages from different publications that we mentioned in the first season. Um, and they're going to get you close, but we were able to dial it in a little bit further with our specific type of property. Right. And, and so the difference between Ben and Sam now and Ben and Sam 16 months ago is that Ben and Sam 16 months ago were the average buyer a very smart, but average buyer. Ben and Sam today are, are above average because we don't need to rely on those averages. We have our own averages. We know where the nationally publicly published figures are going to be. We're going to do better where we're going to do not as well. 
we know that stuff. This is, this is what I mean by saying we don't have to rely on national data, regional data. We have our own data at this point. It's helpful to have trailing financials. So you don't have to guess mm -hmm. about these things. Okay. Um, but on the first deal, you don't have anything. And so you're going to go to the IRM report. You're going to find Arizona. You're going to find Phoenix. And you're going to see what the OPEX is. And you can even drill it down further. You can look at garden style apartments, which is mostly what we see here in Phoenix. You can look at certain uh, year construction range. Yeah, vintage. Uh, yeah. Um, you can see uh, boiler properties. You can see uh, individually metered properties. They're subdivided. And there's a number of different publications that track that. And we reference those today still. I mean, that's, that's the starting point. It's mm -hmm. just that Phoenix is a 5 million population city now with a lot of different kind of buildings. And so looking at those averages will get you close enough, but it's not going to dial you in. You really need to have some trailing data of your own for the kind of building you buy um, to really dial it in. Yeah. And, and even, and, go ahead. Go ahead. The so the first three properties that we bought were all the exact same year of construction. Um, so even that, we don't we no longer have to work with a range like in the IRM reports. We have one year. We know we have the exact same mechanicals. You know what the exact costs are going to be. Um, similar landscaping. Mm -hmm. And the only adjustment you are making is for the fact that one property is 20 units more than the other one. So how do you adjust? for certain costs that are property level costs that are getting spread over 20 more units. And we can, we can talk a little more later about those specifics, but that's what makes you extremely effective is being able to completely dominate those numbers. You're no longer making assumptions. You know stuff. Mm. So we have, Quality partnerships, broker relationships, underwriting. So what other about the process, Sam, was the hardest part about getting that first deal? Can you go back and, you know, pull a couple more things? And I somewhat touched on it. So I think it's getting the broker to just recommend you as a buyer to the seller. Um, he basically has to tell the seller that he has confidence that you'll close because there's a lot of work involved in once you get a deal under contract to get to that finish line. And if you have a false start with the way they call a false start where it doesn't close and he has to go back to market to get another buyer, that's a lot of work and a lot of time involved and nobody wants to mm -hmm. do that. And it's the broker's reputation on the line. So you have to basically be able to convince that broker that you're going to do what you say, what you say you're going to do. Uh, and that's a lot of work when you haven't done it before. Yeah. Right. Not so, only that, but you have a lot of times in, in the current market where the seller is going to be 1031 exchanging into another property. So mm -hmm. you, your deal falling apart has dramatic impact potentially on the seller uh, and his 1031. And so the broker is the one ends up looking like a schmuck for recommending you. And then, you know, you don't close. Um, so that's a situation you never want to be in, but when it's your first one, the question is, Sam, how do you get the broker 
who doesn't know you from Pete mm. to go to bad for you? That's what Scott's asking. We, we, How do we, we get the broker? We had to convince him that we knew our numbers first. So you have your underwriting. You're, you're not going to be surprised by anything and that you have your equity lined up. So for the numbers, we, we got our PM to go out to the property with us, look over all the mechanicals, look at the roofs, look at the plumbing. We showed them our underwriting. We worked with our PM to dial it in. Um, and basically they had faith that we knew everything about the property, that nothing was going to surprise us that we would back out or try to adjust the price. Um, and then we started working with a broker that had a good relationship or sorry, we started working with a mortgage broker that had a good relationship with a broker we were trying to buy from. Um, so that way he can vouch for us and that we had the equity lined up. We had the debt lined up. Um, so you have to get all of that in place before so that you can give the broker confidence that you're going to be able to close. So it's amazing. Yeah. When Sam says we got our PM to go out, this is a full service property management company. They have probably close to 25,000 units under management. They have a construction arm, the whole thing. So what it means when we say we got the PM to go out to the property, it means that we got these people in the inspection, in the construction arm, in the property management arm to take time out of their day without knowing us from Pete to take a chance and take a half day and go out to the property and call the subs to get up on the roof, to look at the boiler, to look at the HVAC, to look at the, you know, whatever. Okay. And look at the unit types, look at the unit, you know, kitchen sizes, look at, you know, th this was a, this was, this wasn't a dialed in kind of thing, but it was a significant prelim kind of a, an inspection to get us reasonably close to where the expectation of the numbers might be. Now, again, this is one of those things. And I mentioned in the beginning that we've now taken a lot of those functions in house. Why? Because we know this, we don't have to worry about this. We don't, we don't, we don't even need to do many of the things that we did, but when you're new, you have to do that. So to get the PM to give you the time of day to allocate resources to accommodate this, which you need in order to give the broker some confidence. Then you go into Burcadia offices and you sit down with a broker and to get that broker to believe that you know what you are doing and that you are working within an ecosystem of professionals that you know is more likely than not to facilitate your successful outcome it is challenging no question about it you you have to be yes you don't know factual stuff because you ha don't have any trailing data but as far as the average is concerned the numbers, the underwriting, you have to be extraordinarily well-educated. That's all you have at that point. Mm. You go in to talk to the broker, you show them your underwriting. If it looks like Marcus and Melichap, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> if it looks like you're going to run the property at $3,600 a, a door, OPEX, get out of there. They're going to laugh you out of the office. They just, there are certain things that you must know at least relative to the averages for them to take a double take and look at you and say, huh, maybe I better talk to these people and 
figure out how much they know and whether or not I should try to hold their hand a little bit on the first one or second one. They basically want to see that you're educated and that you're professional. And if you can display that, I think anybody's willing to work with you. I mean, these people all make money by you buying that property, right? Everybody that we yeah. talked about is gets a piece of that. So they want you to be successful. But when you, yeah. when you show up with a team of eight to 10 people, you've never bought a property, but you're showing up with a team of eight to 10 people and one of the biggest property management companies in the area, the, the broker takes notice. And even though you haven't bought a property, I mean, you look like you have a big operation. So mm. throughout this season two, I think we should probably throw out one-liner advices kind of a thing. And my first one is the first relationship that you might want to consider establishing is with a property manager. Absolutely agree. Because that's going to tee up your relationship with the real estate broker, with the mortgage broker, with, in the end, owners. And, and actually, to go to a step further, to tee it up, I mean, we asked for referrals. So we asked our property management, the owner of the company, who we should use for our mortgage broker. And he said, the big guy here in town is, and the guy at Bercadia that we used, um, that he had a relationship with the broker we were trying to get the deal from. Then that lender also gave us the referral to our real estate attorney. Um, so you're just getting referrals. Once you start with that PM, you can get all of the referrals you need to get everything teed up. I love that. I love how you built confidence around the broker through those arms, right? If you had the financing, the property management, those relationships are key. So it's not well, so much that you're bringing them out to dinner. Yeah. Broker I, I asked him once upon a time, I said, how come you gave us a shot? He said, I called around. I called Luke at Bercadia and I called Shelton at the mm -hmm. PM. You're working with the right people. You, 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 your underwriting makes sense. Now it's just a question of execution. I, I thought I'd give you a chance. That's awesome. So I think the biggest thing with this is you have all that set up, but even more so is having the capital lined up. So how did you portray that confidence to your investors and how did you get, you know, people that you know and trust to, to believe in what you're doing, especially for the first one? Um, well, you lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, honestly, I don't believe that, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Ben says that very facetiously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that jokes are him. <laughs> but uh, listen, every time you go into uh, syndication, is just kind of one step at a time kind of deal. So from deal to deal, you never know where your next deal is going to come from. Like right now, it's been about a month and a half, two months since we closed Suncrest. I've now started shopping. We've now started shopping. I don't know where the deal is going to come from. I don't know what it's going to look like. So raising money is kind of like that as well. I mean, yeah, you have on that first deal, we needed to raise three and a half million dollars, which was a nice chunk. Um, did I have it sitting there ready to go? Of course not. We needed to raise it. So do I have a complete guarantee that the money will be there? No, I don't. Do I have complete faith in myself that I'll be able to raise it? Yeah, I do. Well, and that, so that's, that's gotta be enough. 
Yeah. And that's what I wanted to pull out is if, if you only had, let's say 50% of, you know, a verbal, what, where did you get that faith from? Right. Was it faith in the deal being so good faith in the team being so good kind of all wrapped up into one? Well, cause that's yes a big jump. Yes. Yes. And yes. Yeah. So the deal has to be good enough. Um, faith in myself. Yes. But also, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want people to, to read that the wrong way, but you know, when your back's to the wall and you have no retreat path, you get shit done. Mm. That's just how life is. And for me, it was a very interpersonal thing because I was a landlord. I was buying duplexes, fiveplexes, tenplex. I mean, that's what I was doing. And then that cup overfilled. And I wasn't that guy anymore. That cup wasn't enough for me. So what guy am I now? And this is, call it midlife crisis. Of course it wasn't, <laughs> but, but it's that kind of a serious kind of thing. What about my life? Well, you know what? When raising three and a half million dollars to get the deal done is about who you are, you get it done. You just get it done. I mean, there were plenty of times where we were very nervous. And I, I think that actually happens in every deal. There's, even if it's very briefly, a day or two, you're, you're going to have times where you think, did we get in over our heads on this one? Mm. So at that point, what advice do you have, right? Do you, do you try to take a step back and look at the scope of things and know that during that 30 to 45 day, you know, process till you close, is there something that you guys like to do say, Hey, we've been through this, we've got this stay focused. Well, that's usually my message to Ben every day during the race. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with the race, I want you to think in terms of planting a tree, a citrus tree or an apple tree. If you want an apple, you first have to plant the seed, which then grows into a baby tree, which then matures for a couple of reasons. Then you can't take the fruits the first year. And then you take them, you, you, you take them off and you, you regrow them so the tree is healthy. Then a couple of years after doing that, now you've got a fruit bearing apple tree or whatever it is. Mm. So raising money is the same way. You can't, this idea that money will come if the deal is good, that's true in my life because I've been planting these trees for over a decade. But if you're brand new to this, that's fallacy. So raising money is not a function of asking for money. It's a function of attracting money to yourself. It's a function of making sure that people know who you are, what you do and standing relationships. So even though you don't have the money sitting in the bank, you have a lot of people who know that potentially there might be something interesting going on in your life that they would want to take part of or part in. So it's a long process. 
you just can't go zero to 60 like a Tesla in 2.9 seconds. That's just not how that works <laughs> in multifamily. Now, in, in my life, kind of, you know, with two Teslas in the garage, I have to say I enjoy that very phenomenon. But raising money, that's not how that works. So the advice number two that I can give people is don't put, I see this a lot people putting themselves out there with some kind of stupid ass messaging uh, that I help people invest in multifamily. Well, first of all, it's questionable how SEC compliant that messaging is in the first place. And secondly, it just doesn't work as well as people coming to me and saying, hey, can I invest with you without me having to go and ask for it? Mm -hmm. And you know, that happens once for a long time, you deliver value to people, you create relationships, you create a, a perspective on who you are, and why people should invest with you and things of that nature. I've been teaching people real estate for over a decade, I have a lot of students. Uh, and a lot of them are quite successful. And a lot of them have become my investors. And and it kind of builds on itself. But the point being, it was never a thing where I went out and I said, hey, I got a deal. Give me some money. That's not how that works. Uh, I, you know, you, you have to have those um, relationships in place. And to build those relationships, you have to deliver value first. You have to give first. And all of that takes time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, if you look at prodigious fundraisers, like for instance, Cardone, that's what, that's what everybody does. It's just that he's got a bigger bullet pulpit than me. So he's got a TV show and a podcast and everything else. So he's able to reach more people than I can reach. And therefore more people believe in him, trust him and trust him with their money. And they come to him and they say, can we invest with you? We like the way you think. We like the way you do things. But the point is, he took the initiative to put himself out there, to teach people something, to give people perspective, to do something for people that they perceive as value. And then they come back to him and say, okay, here's the next step. Well, that's how that works. And that's all I've done over, you know, many, many years. And, and to get to that first one, you're going to almost have to transform your identity in the eyes of your investors, which is at that time, just your colleagues, your friends, family, they're going to have to go to see you as someone who is doing real estate can is buying big properties. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, Ben had 10 years to lead up to that point. It, and if you're, if you don't have that experience, it's going to be difficult to change that perception that your investors are going to have of you into someone who can do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how critical was creating that, you know, that leadership platform, that coaching platform, you know, giving out that content for you, you know, going forward? Well, that was the essence of my being able to raise money. I mean, that, that's it. Mm -hmm. So how would you recommend someone who's, you know, on that first path, they may have a couple deals in their belt, but what, you know, what type of platform are, are you looking to recommend, say, hey, 
you know, create a podcast, create a blog, create, you know, some type of thing that so people can see you being an expert out there. Um, the big path I see people doing is just going to tons of conferences, seminars, whether there's valid or not. They go to tons of conferences, seminars. They post all over social media that they're going to these things. And that way, if people just start associating them with large multifamily syndications. Mm -hmm. Now, education on the forefront, right? So getting this started, that first, you know, that deal leading up to it, you've been putting out content, you've seen an expert, you're already investing in real estate. So what was some of the first things that you picked up that you learned about, you know, syndication and how to use it as an investing tool? Well, this, this goes back to season one, I think. Um, the, the paradigm change is that there's a long-term hold concept, and then there's a long-term flip concept. Syndication is a long-term flip. Why? Because while cash flow is important, equity is more important. Why? Because equity allows us to either refinance or sell why? Because people want to know before they put money in how and when you're going to get their money out. So that reality, when you are a small investor and you're buying a 10-unit building and you're just interested in cash flow, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just you, it's just your money. What you find out very quickly is that when you're dealing with millions of people's money, the question of when can I get my money back comes right before the question of how much interest are you gonna make me on my money? So it's arguably more important to understand the exit. And the exit is all about equity. It's not about cash flow. We back into the equity through the cash flow, but that's just mechanics of it as we discussed in season one. So with equity being front and center, you're not talking about conceptually a long-term hold, you're talking about a flip even though it may take a long term to flip it, it's a flip. So that's a completely different approach to multifamily. It's a completely different approach to underwriting. And until you cross that paradigm, you, you, it's, I don't see how you can attract money. I suppose people do, but I can't wrap my head around how, because I've never met any investor that wants to say, here's my money, hold it forever. I just don't even care. I don't know that that happens. In my experience, it doesn't happen. So understanding this paradigm shift of going from here's a long-term hold to here's an asset that we're going to hold for a while, but we're really trying to flip it to create an equity position. Um, mm -hmm. The underwriting process, the mentality changes 180 degrees. Yeah, it, I hope that answers your question, Sam. That anything to add? Nope. Yeah, if there, yeah, if there's like any type of, you know, books or mentors, you know, can you point to anybody that helped you along the way? You know, you didn't have to drop names, but was there any critical person that kind of helped guide you, you know, down that path? Well, I've always, I've always um, looked at what Brian Burke did. Mm -hmm. I've known Brian for about. I don't know, five, six years. Um, always thought about him 
and it's 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 interesting because the way I kind of uh, arrived at him is that of all of the people on Bigger Pockets and what have you, you know, the things that he posted and the things that he said about real estate just made me think. And I, I was ninety five percent there in understanding everything, but it was the five percent that was missing that I, I was trying mm-hmm. to crack that nut. And so I kept coming after him, after him, after him, asking questions <laughs> about that. And we've never had a uh, a traditional mentorship relationship. It's it's a friendship more so than anything else. But it's always been good to have access, specifically early on when I was trying to figure out the formula, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people raise money. A lot of people syndicate deals. Everybody has their own way. Sam and I do it quite differently, I think, from Brian in some respects uh, now. But in the early stages, yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked what I was seeing from him. Um, but also, you know, you read books by Sam Zell and, and others, and you just begin to understand the big money was made on the exit. Mm-hmm. That's where the big money was made. And so you begin to, again, it, it goes back to that paradigm shift. Is it really a long-term hold? Um, or is it something else, a different kind of animal? Yeah. Well, I love how you said that. I love that last 5% thing because I, I can echo that same thought. I think there's enough publications, books, contents out there to get that 95% of, you know, the the understanding of, okay, I think I know how to do it. But in order to really be successful and really understand that last 5%, that expertise, that's difficult, right? Trying to crack that. So mm-hmm. what is that what you recommend is getting someone who's been in the business and kind to, you know, try to get under them or what does that look like? I think yeah, there's yeah. two ways, right? <clears throat> it's finding someone or the harder way is going through it yourself and learning by experience. And well, I have to take a step back. Sam Grooms did it different from me, but Sam Grooms is unequivocally, no question in my mind, one of the most brilliant people I know and his relationship with numbers is unlike any other person I've ever met, including the Burks and the Cells the and, and, and the Cardones and everybody else. You know, so it's not fair to look at Sam and see what he has done, which is go from zero to 60 in a split second, and to think that you can do it. Uh, this is he's just not like me. He's not like any of us. It's unfair. It's great for him, but it's, it would be silly to think that people can do that. That's why I always laugh. You know, he posts things on bigger pockets and everybody's just like, and I'm going myself and thinking, you fucker, you think you're going to do this? You think you're going to do this? But, but I had my own 5%, right? It was just, I had my own 5% remaining. It was just different from what most people have. Mm. So, so what happened to me is being in the trenches, that's what was required. I didn't have the classical mathematical slash 
bookkeeping slash accounting slash economics training. I didn't have any of that. So what I learned, I learned from starting buying property in 2006 and continually buying, uh, you know, all these years and, and looking at the trailing numbers and kind of identifying dynamics and backing into the truths through experience, through school of hard knocks. Sam did it very differently. He, he's able to look at those numbers and identify realities that took me a decade to formulate, which is not something, I mean, the, the, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say that he had the complete formula. He was, you, there are certain things you need, the dynamics you have to experience. You need experience to understand how certain things are going to evolve. He was missing that. I was missing the human aspect. So I, I had all the numbers and knew how stuff should run. But what is the human variable that can right. be thrown into that? And how do you predict right. that? That's perfect way to put it. Hmm. And that's because he didn't do it. So, you know, that's why you trust the autopilot more than you trust yourself. Because the computer is less likely to make a mistake, right? So, but the computer isn't running the property. The computer isn't renting the units. The computer isn't fixing the furnace or the leaky roof or whatever. It's the humans that are doing that. So what does that mean? How does that impact what your computer spits out on a spreadsheet? That's the part he was missing, but that's the part I had after mm -hmm. 15 years in the, in the trenches. So that's one of the ways, you know, tongue and groove kind of partnership that makes yeah. a lot of sense. We come at it from a slightly different perspective, but because we're able to massage our perspectives together, we're able to achieve a pretty dialed in picture. But I do not recommend going big right away simply because unless you are Sam and unless you are lucky to partner with someone you know, who compliments you totally and has that missing component. You, you need that experience. And so yeah. there's a lot of people, Cardone and everybody else, you know, a lot of, it's, it's, become, it's become really sexy to talk about, hey, skip the duplex, the fourplex, go, stri go straight to 100. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's true that there are inefficiencies present in that duplex and fourplex that are going to be a pain in your ass. No question about it. But the pain you are likely to inflict upon yourself by going straight to a hundred is so incomparably greater potential of than the pain you will have to endure while you are learning what you need to know and developing your uh, intellectual worth on those duplexes and fourplexes and sixplexes. And I, and I think it's less about the unit count than having some experience in the trenches before you take on other people's money. So having your own money on the line before your other people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like you said, I mean, you, you both hit the nail on the head with that one, you know, a house hack three and a half percent FHA loan, you know, that gives you your sea legs one, you know, real estate management, landlord, the buying, you know, understanding what goes into that. And, you know, if it starts to slide, 
you know, three and a half percent over 200 K seven grand, you know, you can take those bruises, mm -hmm. but trying to take a bruise on a hundred thousand dollar or, you know, a hundred unit property that really don't know about. And two, like you said, Sam, I think the most important thing is you're playing with other people's money. Like that's not a joke. You know, you have to have that education, that knowledge, that experience lined up before you even go. Yes. On the standpoint from an argument, what would you rather buy a hundred unit or a duplex? That seems pretty easy, but right. not necessarily the best advice. So, right. so the, the third advice. So the first advice was the first relationship is a property manager. That's if you are ready for syndication. If you are going to follow our third advice, which is start small, you are the property manager. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point in buying small before you grow into the big so that you experience those dynamics. You understand, you internalize the human factor. To think you're going to buy a fourplex and you're going to ship it off to a property manager, that's a whole another conversation whether or not that works well. But aside from that, that wasn't the point. The point was for you to learn. You are the property manager. So number one advice as it relates to syndication, a, a, a good institutional PM, getting them on your side when you are ready for syndication or a large multifamily, if you're a single uh, owner buyer, that's fine too. Getting the right kind of PM on your side that's step one. I can't even remember what advice two was. Didn't I write it down? <laughs> Broker relationships. Broker relationships and advice yep. three, start small. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted.